Moses Alexander. Shabbat for three. Bang! Oh! will get it for the win. Got it! He is hard to believe. Here's Jordan. Yes! The magic of 
I was an evangelical preaching the gospel of, of youth sports. And for a volunteer that's just coming in and their kid wants them to coach, it's they don't necessarily they haven't they haven't drunk the Kool-Aid mm-hmm. that I'd had. What do you think? So you had a section in the book of all these different kinds of coaches. Obviously, you've coached many teams uh, at the youth level. I even got into coaching my freshman year of college. What were some of the things you had to tell them to watch out for? Maybe, you know, you, you wrote a lot about how sometimes they get too invested. And I feel like the whole premise of the book was kind of that a lot of these parents, because they hear that their kid is good, oh, he may go D1, this and that, and they start ratcheting it up to the point where they started to kind of live vicariously through the kid, and it's more about the parent uh, than the kid. That's a common problem. I think that's probably the, the biggest problem in youth sports is parents who've either played the game or seen the game um, consider themselves experts so that they can now, you know, they don't need any additional, um, you know, coaching to become coaches. But I think once, as, as you just said, once some parents see their kids have a little bit of talent, all of a sudden it just blows up in their head and they extrapolate from that. Well, my kid can play college. My kid might be good enough to be a pro. And these are three and four and five-year-old kids who can barely walk, don't talk, a lot of them, can't tie their shoes, but parents are, are seeing this huge career blossoming before their eyes. So it was my job to kind of modulate their expectations and to not have them visit those expectations on their kids to realize that it is just a game and it's fun. And if the kid is going to be talented, then the truth is that you want to keep the kid interested. So in, so initially putting all these pressures on the kids um, is going to be counterproductive in the long run. I was going to ask, have you ever um, had a um, parent that you were training and they totally missed the boat and just went into a direction where you're like, oh man, like this is a train wreck? You often have that. There are parents that, that come reluctantly to the training because they have to go there because they need to be, as I say, trained and certified. And there are some of them that are just going through the motions because they've played ball in college mm-hmm. because, you know, they've had their older kids are already doing this and that. And you can sort of see their eyes glaze over as you're, you're talking. And you still have to try and, and push the message and convey what the program's all about. A lot of those parents will do it for a little while and then the second they see, oh, my kid's old enough, let's go over to club. Um, they'll instantly drop out of recreational sports and then move to the quote-unquote higher-level program, which comes with its own issues as well. But yeah, there are some parents that, that they don't care what you say. They've got their own program, their own agenda, and they, they're, they're just going for it. What have you, in your experience, what has been the best way to coach at the youth recreational level? Does it vary by team and age and sport or is it just, is there a way that you do it and that's the way that has worked for you? It absolutely varies by age because there are developmental steps for all the kids at different ages. You know, five-year-olds are not gonna be ready for stuff that you can then give to nine-year-olds who aren't gonna be ready for the the games and strategy you're gonna be doing with 15 and 16-year-olds. Mm-hmm. But I think the the key for me is keeping it fun it doesn't have to be laugh out loud fun. It doesn't have to be ha ha. But you want to vary it, uh, challenge the kids in a way that they can rise to, um, make sure they're having a good time. Because um, if you capture them that way, then all the other stuff will follow. 
But if you're one of these coaches that goes out there and you're barking orders and you're having them do line drills and one ball at a time or run laps or all this you know, stuff that you really wouldn't want to do and isn't always all that game related, you're going to lose these kids. Mm-hmm. And there are so many options now that kids do not have to play your game. You know, they might play soccer, you know, for a year or so. And then let's go play basketball. Let's play lacrosse. Let's play baseball. Let's play flag football. There's so many options. So, but whatever sport you want to coach, you've got to keep it enjoyable because that captures the kid's imagination and makes him want to play longer, harder, deeper. Um, And I think it, it, to me, it just comes down to fun and knowing that this is a chapter in your kid's life, this is not your kid's life. So no, there are some parents that see their six-year-old who are pretty good, and as I said, they you know they see this this wonderful future out ahead of them, and then adolescence is going to hit in a couple of years, and adolescence is the great leveler. You know, some kids who are fabulous at six, they're just they're not going to grow, and some kids who are picking daisies at eight or nine, at fourteen or fifteen, can sprout into these you know gigantic athletic bodies and discover that they love the sport. So the trick for parents is to sort of keep everything in perspective, which is hard to do when you're in the middle of it, but you need to take a step back, look at your kids, watch your kids, listen to your kids, and um, really kind of enjoy the ride. So fun is a huge component. Yeah, I, when, I, when I coached, the one thing I realized was my kids were like 11, to 11, 12. And in the beginning, I was like, you know, I'm not gonna focus. Obviously, I, you know me, I always wanna win, but I obviously was like, you know, they're young, that's not what's important, I want them to learn. First game, I had I wanted them to have fun at practice. We'd go out there on the first game and we'd just get waxed. And I just remember, none of the kids were happy after the game because they didn't play well because they lost by 18 points. They were turning the ball over, all this. So then I realized that the fun and the winning with this situation with these age kids kind of went hand in hand because the better that they played... And I will say this, though. There's also... I think you may have talked about it in the book a little bit. There's several ways to win. There's... The, the, the winning when there's one guy that's so superior to everybody and everybody kind of just stands around and watches, that's not really that fun. I think it's better to lose and play collectively than see one kid that's superior to everybody. But my team's when we kind of came to my, my thing is obviously teamwork, so we came together as one. And even though we lost going forward, each time uh, each time we improved, it was, it was, the kids were happy, and when we won, it was even better. I think that brings up two things. One is that kids need to develop before they can win. They need to have basic skills before they can actually win. So the winning often comes too early. And then there's that one kid who, as you said, you know, funnel the ball to that guy and he'll score all the points, get all the baskets, um, whatever it takes. But I think collectively the kids have to develop so that they have an understanding of the game, they have the physical ability to, to win. And then... Second, I think you need to expand your definition of winning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we score more points than you do, we win. But I think that there have to be smaller smaller increments of winning too. That's true. The kid who previously couldn't dribble halfway up the court, who basically now can make it to half court. That's what I was going to ask you. How did you navigate with the players that are really good and the kids that, you know, when when they touch the ball, they're probably going to lose it? Well, the good kids you really can't ruin. They're going to yeah. stay good kids. Mm-hmm. So you hope that through repetition and time on the ball, they'll get better. For the other kids, you give them smaller bits. Um, as you, you give them you know, little things that they can learn. They can you know, practice their first touch. Um, one of my good pals, Coach Kareen, 
was coaching a horrendous under 12 girls all-star team. They would get waxed every time they got out on the field. And so she taught them a couple of ball tricks, a step over move. And she said, if everybody executes that trick at least once during the game, ice cream for all. Mm. So you'd have them in the, you know, they'd get the ball, there'd be no one near them, they'd just do a step over. That counted for that person. The goalie was doing a step over. It didn't matter if they did it and they lost the ball as long as they tried it. They all got ice cream. They but had no chance of winning? No, ch no oh, okay. chance. They were overmatched. <laughs> but they got better. At the beginning of the season, they couldn't score a goal. By the middle of the season, they scored a goal. By the end of the season, they were kind of competitive. And where they had been losing 10 nothing, they were now losing 8-5. <laughs> so, but that's success. Yeah, no, it's improving. You know, you have to, you have, to have a, a bigger picture of, of what you're trying to do. And I think it helps for coaches to have a concept of what the season should be. Mm -hmm. You know, if they go in thinking, we're going to just kill everybody and win the championship, more often than that, it's not going to happen. If they go in thinking, I'm going to make sure that every one of my kids is better at the end of the season than he is now, two things. They will be better, and those are kids that are going to want to come back and play next year, which is really what it's all about. You want kids, you want them to have the desire to keep playing. Because as we said a couple of minutes ago, there's so many other distractions besides sports. They can just go stay home and play video games, or they can just do a million different things that are available to them now. We want to keep them in sports. Yeah. I was Speaking of keeping them in sports and the long-term effects, I wanted to talk about something that's very relevant, especially with the NBA season that we just covered here. And that was a quote from your book about injuries. And we, we hear a lot about the... You know, the training is better, the facilities, the medicinal equip, or the medicine and surgeries, everything is improved with technology. But this is from the book. Across the spectrum of youth sports, injuries are on the rise. The Wall Street Journal reported that in 2013, there were three and a half million sports-related injuries sustained by kids 18 and under. According to the CDC, high school athletes alone account for an estimated 2 million of those injuries, resulting in 500,000 doctor visits and 30,000 hospitalizations every year. When 13-year-olds are tearing ACLs and 16-year-olds are undergoing Tommy John reconstructive elbow surgery so they can continue pitching, you've got to start questioning where we went wrong. And then you said, um, but even with intervention from on high, far too many reject a less is more approach and watch young athletes overuse the same body parts in a system of overtraining. So what we saw this season was we saw a lot of people blaming the increased injuries in the NBA it was all time high these last couple of years. But this season it was really high because they said it was the shortened off season. But we see a lot of these guys though that are younger players, twenty you know my age and younger, getting torn ACLs and non contact injuries within the first couple of weeks of the season. Which you know, and then you when you kind of go back and. You hear about all this, oh, all the athletes have improved, and you go back to see guys from your era, Havlicek's and Willis Reed, and then playing 48 minutes. Where have we gone wrong? I think a lot has to do with how much our kids now play. Mm -hmm. They start really early. They specialize really early. Six-year-olds can now play club soccer. It used to be kids would maybe at 12 or 13 go over and start playing in the more competitive program. But kids are playing the same sport year-round, forever since they're six, seven, eight. They're, they specialize. And so it's the repetitive use, the constant. It, it, the, one of the beauties of playing multiple sports is you're using different muscles. 
Um, you're learning different strategies, which then inform all the other sports and make you better in everything. But I think these play so much. I think the Havlicek's and the Reeds and the Walt Frazier's, they might have been playing basketball all year round, mm. but they were shooting on, you know, at their gyms or on the outside on, courts. They weren't playing in weekly organized tournaments three or four times a month, 12 months a year. I mean, there's so much that the athlete, the young athlete plays in now. Where Did you just see last week a seventh grader was just uh, given a college scholarship, football scholarship? I mean, coaches aren't supposed to, but they're looking at kids younger and younger. Parents play into this. And I think part of the problem with a lot of the athletes now in the NBA and a lot of athletes now have been playing for so long this one sport that their bodies tend to break down. And it happens with unfortunate and increasing frequency. And you, you talked about, um, you know, lifting weights and the, the athletes that do several sports. I remember hearing Jordan and Kobe's trainer, Tim Grover, talk about the similar thing where a lot of, a lot of uh, people want it to get sports specific. But sometimes just branching out or just lifting and just building the foundation is, is more effective and it's less – it prevents injury better. Sam Darnold played – three or four sports way into high school. Giancarlo Stanton played baseball, basketball, and football. Dave Winfield was recruited for the pro leagues for baseball, basketball, and football. I think that your better athletes are ones that, you know, multitask, as it were, will spread out, and they become less injury-prone, although Giancarlo Stanton... You know, every time he walks across the field, he's going to pull something. I mean, you look at LeBron and Michael Jordan. Jordan did baseball and basketball. LeBron did football and basketball. And he's had an he's the epitome of longevity and taking care of his body. But he's the outlier. He's a yeah, freak of true. nature. That is true. But, I mean, you you look at him and in, in high school, he had this already Adonis body. Yeah. But there are also those guys that have great bodies like your Blake Griffin that are part of this, that got injured left and right as well, too. So, like, I feel like a lot of it is because... You know, everybody's aesthetically. A lot of these guys look better, but do you think that the more the better training and all this is actually true? Do you think it's the the, the training now is just that being overworked? I think the training now is way more sophisticated than it was. Um, you know, back in the day, these guys would show up, they'd do spring training, they'd go out and drink and smoke cigarettes and go out and party. Now everybody's a little more focused, or at least from what we hear. Mm. Um, but I think, despite the advances in training that a lot of it has to do with how long these guys have been playing this one sport. So that's a perfect segue into the Knicks. Uh, I actually want to hear first, before we get into the, the specific early 70s Knicks, who were your you know, sports heroes growing up in New York as a kid? I think the first one was Mickey Mantle. Okay. He's a Yankee fan. The first baseball game I ever went to, Roger Maris hit his 61st home run, breaking Babe Ruth's record. Wow. Um, I think at the moment I was bent over because I had dropped a hot dog on the ground and the <laughs> ball went shooting out into right field. And I think I might have missed it, but I heard the cheers, stood up and cheered and became part of the experience. So the Yankees, Roger Maris, Mickey Mantle, the, the 60s Yankees um, were huge. As we moved into basketball with the Knicks, I think guys like Dave DeBusher and Bill Bradley. I, I loved the team game. Yeah. I was always enamored of watching just... The, the fluidity with which these guys played together. And I thought that this, you know, the 69-70 Knicks completely embodied the team concept. So all of those guys, um, Bradley, DeBusher, 
uh, Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, Dick Barnett, Cassie Russell, um, Dave Stallworth going down the line to Phil Jackson at the end of the bench. Yeah. Um, they, they were big heroes. So what was the scene like? Do you remember? Give me some memories of that, uh, of that year. You know, playing the Lakers, they had their superstars with Wilt, Jerry West, and Elgin Baylor. Um, how, what was the city like at that time? Well, I was a little kid still. Yeah. So a lot of those memories are memories in the dark of lying in my bedroom listening to the games um, on my AM clock radio. Who was the announcer? It was Marv Albert. Wow. And so to me, the, the voice of, of the Knicks and basketball has always been Marv Albert. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, Marv Albert came out of a tradition. He was a protege of Marty Glickman. Mm -hmm. Marty Glickman, who really was the dean of of announcers, who announced Giant Games, Jet Games, Nick Games, Ranger Games, High School Games, NASCAR, whatever. He he just... um, And a little-known fact I want to interject about Marty Glickman. Marty Glickman was on the 1936 U.S. Olympic team he was supposed to run the 400 meter relay, but he was Jewish. And at the last minute, he and the other Jewish runner, a guy named Sam Stoller, were pulled out of the relay. Never was really said, but in deference to Adolf Hitler, noted anti-Semite. Wow. And Jesse Owens and yeah. Ralph Metcalf were inserted into the relay, which they won by 15 yards running away. But so Marty Glickman was an athlete who became an announcer had a big influence on Marv. on Marv. And so listening to Marv call things, it was just, you know, so the Knicks were Marv to me. Yeah. And um, the excitement that he could generate on a radio broadcast, because most games were not televised. televised. Um, to me, I'd be lying in bed at night listening, and I felt like I was in the garden. Do you remember any moment, like, for example, Jerry West's half-court heave in Awful. Game 3? Awful. Listening to the game. Oh, you were the Knicks to are going to win the game. You did end up winning that game, though. Well, but I thought, well, correct me if I'm wrong. So, Jerry, uh, I just remember that 60-foot shot. Yeah, tie the game, send it to overtime. Okay. But what I remember most is is Marv's calling of Willis Reed coming out yeah, for that... Game 7. After he was injured in Game 6, New York Press then wrote off the Knicks, figured, well, that's it. And this guy, you hear Marv, his, his voice getting more and more excited as Willis comes limping out of the tunnel and he's on coming onto the court and he's taking a couple of shots. It was just huge. And I remember the Knicks went on, obviously, to win the game. Yeah. But all we talked about on the school bus the next day was Willis coming out and how memorable it was because Marv was able to do that for us. Did you? So a lot of people have talked about how Clyde Frazier had such an incredible game that night, but it doesn't really get, it gets overshadowed by the Willis come out. Obviously, Willis coming out was huge for, you know, he was the MVP that year, finals MVP, all-star MVP, won them all. But that game was such a, 36 points, 19 assists for Frazier, and I feel like he gets left out of the fold. I mean, how popular were these guys, like Frazier, Reed? Ridiculously popular. I mean, they they were cultural icons, Um, just like that year Joe Namath was. Mm -hmm. Um, they, you know, the city was alive again. I was really young. So I was 14 or 15 living on Long Island. So Mm -hmm. I don't have the city experience from that. Um, but you'd see these guys in the newspaper and you'd see them on the, the sports shows. Um, you know, Clyde was a a flashy dresser. Still is. So, (laughs) you know, you know, there'd be stories about that, but they were celebrated and you would hear all about them all the time. Was, did you think Willis is more popular than Patrick Ewing? 
Yes. Really? Yes. Because they obviously had the second. Do you have any better? Which title do you think uh, is more memorable? I feel like the 71 is the one everyone talks about, but 73 are a little one. older. It was the first one. Yeah. But then obviously you have guys like Earl the Pearl and Jerry Lucas come in and. They were fabulous. Yeah. And, and celebrated too. But I think when you. It was. First of all, that was also a magical year in New York because it was the year the Mets won too. Mm. So New York was alive. Um, and not to take away from the 73 one, which was fantastic too, but the first one was just so new. Yeah. And the Knicks were so newly good because they'd only been good for a year or two before yeah. that, um, that, you know, they it sort of came to, New York came to expect um, unreasonably, obviously, because it's so hard to repeat and to, you know, play at that high a level. But the, the 73 one was strong. I think the 71 was just, you know, off the charts. I had two questions about the Knicks, actually, before we moved on. One was, do you remember, do you have any recollection of the year after where they lost to the, it was going to be, everyone was talking about them versus Milwaukee in the finals with when they Bucks got Oscar Robertson, but the Knicks lost in a game seven to the Baltimore Bullets. Who at that time had Gus Johnson, Wes Unseld, and Jack Marin, and, yeah, and Earl of Pearl. Do you have any recollection of that at all? I think that the, what happens to lots of teams, the expectations are so high. That they, they just can't reach it. And Baltimore had a good matchup. There were a lot of strong teams in the East. Yeah. People don't really I feel like besides the Celtics, and I feel like, and obviously the Knicks that won, we really don't, we don't talk about how much talent that Eastern Conference really had anymore in, in basketball talk. And it's a shame because the East now is the much, it's been the weaker conference for 20 years. It's but coming on. It's coming on. It's coming on for sure. But the, that late 60s East, yeah. you know, you had the Sixers with Billy Cunningham and Hal Greer. And Oscar Robertson on the Royals. Yeah, and they weren't even making the playoffs. Like, that's how good the East was. They couldn't even make the playoffs. Um, but my other question was, how did it feel to see the Knicks fall from that that embodied team, championships, to becoming, you know... Awful. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, then you were wandering in the desert, and you kept hoping because Red Holtzman kept coaching for a bunch of years. But they, they never could find the same formula. I remember the year that they basically traded everybody and just kept Patrick Ewing... And then figured, well, we're going to just build the whole team around him. And it never seemed to work. Yeah, those, those 90s Knicks got pretty close. I mean, 1994, Game 7, then 99 made it back to the finals. But yeah, it didn't materialize. And then I feel like after Ewing, it's really been like a shit show over there. I think a lot of that has to do with the Madison Square Garden management and the... Ownership. The, the Dolan family's yeah. priori pri prioritization of profits over product. Yeah. Because they know that New York fans are going to show up anyway. And so they just, they haven't been great owners. They're, they won't relinquish because they got a great deal. And I think they've, they've hurt the franchise, which seems to be, knock on wood and thankfully, on the rebound. Yeah. I was going to say, do you think the Knicks, I know, I've been to one Knicks game. That's where I got this shirt, actually. But um, they have an amazing fan base, dedicated, seem very into basketball. But would you say that uh, the Yankees in baseball are still the number one in New York? Or does it really depend Whoa. on who's winning? Yeah. New Yorkers are loyal, but they love winners. I mean, the, I'm a giant fan as well. Mm -hmm. And that's dreadful. That's just a horrible feeling. I, I, I described it recently as there being no safety bar or the safety bar on the roller coaster not being able to come up. So you're locked in for the ride and you just have to take it. You've seen a couple of Super Bowls, though, in your time. But as a, as a longtime giant fan, you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. 
You never feel comfortable in success. So even as they're about to clinch the victory, you go, no, something's going to happen. You know, Norwood's going to hit that field goal. Um, <laughs> you know, they're just, they're, they're yeah. going to choke. Um, I feel that way with the Yankees. I feel that way with, you know, the Knicks. Yeah. You're never certain of victory. And even after the game, you're going, they, they really won that pinch me. Did they really win that? So really, there's no team that stands out in terms of like when this team is winning, the whole city cares more than anyone else. I think the city embraces all their teams. I think they trash all their teams as well. <laughs> when the Rangers were on a good run a couple of years ago, you know, the city were all everybody was a Ranger fan. So I think the city is just a great sports city. Mm -hmm. They're alive to their sports, but they need to be convinced as well. Yeah. Okay, so my last question was something that you did in camp that I guess it led to me doing this was we had a, a contest, which was basically like a talent show of various things. Basically, how how each morning we started off with this and how could each kid – basically the most the, – the people – the kid who got the loudest ovation from the campers won. It's basically an entertainment contest. Uh, what gave you the – I don't think I've ever asked you this, but what gave you the idea to do that? And was that for kids to just kind of step out of their shells or something? I think we started the contest at the beginning of the camp. And the first, at the beginnings of camp, we start. We started with a daily um, Simon Says, mm -hmm. just to kind of wake kids up. And then we figured, well, let's give the kids a, a chance to entertain each other and come up with contests, which could be singing contests, burping contests, pantomime contests, dance contests. They, they became anything that we could think of the most extreme thing, uh, pulling your earlobe down to your chin. Um, whatever, you know, these kids could do. And and you campers embraced this, that it became a, a daily occurrence and a great warm-up for the rest of the day. Yeah, I mean, it basically became a warm-up for, for some of us, rest of our lives. Because I remember when you go up there and act a fool in front of, like, there was like 100 kids at the time, you know, you're not going to be afraid to give a presentation in class with, in front of 20 kids. So I, I remember I'll be, ever since then, I've been very comfortable talking in front of people. So I, I thank you for that. I think that was one of the unintended benefits of well, it. Um, you know, we were there to keep everybody entertained because camp was really about having a good time. So any way we could do it, as you said, making a fool of yourself. Yeah. Um, and there were no shortage of kids willing to do that. Yeah. So we just sort of exploited it. And it's it's. Been, you know, as you said, it's helped you in public speaking. I know a couple of other campers who have used it as a platform to uh, do other things that have helped them in their lives. Yeah. Um, couple, couple, couple YouTube celebrities from camp for sure. Yeah. So I just want to say this was really fun. It was great, great conversation. Uh, I wanted to give you a chance. You're doing some things on the side. You know, your TikTok's been blowing up. So give yourself a little shout out here. I don't know. I'm just trying to stay relevant. <laughs> just trying to keep a purpose and, and, my mission is to help parents enjoy the 10 years that they're going to have with their kids playing sports. Because mm -hmm. it is, it's a window. It's a small window and it closes really quickly. Um, the parents, the control the parents have is the mood that they set, the tone and the temper. And if they're going to be ultra competitive, often more competitive than their kids, the kids are going to turn off and drop out of sports and they'll ruin this potentially fantastic family time for a decade. So my mission is to have more parents take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy this time with their kids. So, Darren, this has been awesome hanging out with you. As well, as always. I look forward to hanging out with you more next summer. 
But um, what about the TikTok shout out? You got to give yourself a little plug here. Come on. You know, so uh, all right. I, I created an, the anti-coach, um, a guy named Dick Punch, who is the worst coach ever, dispenses the worst advice ever. Um, so we cre- I created him. He's got at real Dick Punch on TikTok. There you go. There are all these little videos of him. Check him out. He's definitely humorous, if nothing else. Make sure if you guys want more on youth sports, what size balls do I need on Amazon, right? Amazon. Amazon. And of course, speaking of TikTok, of course, follow at Real Dick Punch. Also, make sure to follow at Dime Dropper Pod on every platform, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Remember to subscribe to the YouTube channel, of course. And the 1970 Time Machine game, uh, episode three, the night the New York Knicks became NBA champions, coming soon or It'll probably have been released at this point. So thank you guys for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And cut.